You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you, you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about stamp duty, how the government has not changed stamp duty since all the way back to 1986, why the state government really needs to increase standards in the real estate industry, and what craziness happens with trust accounts. The amount of stamp duty that is paid on a, on a property now is, is just disgraceful. So the the stamp duty rates, as I said, haven't moved for 32 years. And when they were set, when they were set at that time, the then treasurer got up and and made some, you know, as they do, made a nice passionate speech about things. And the treasurer said, these higher rates will only apply to the very expensive properties um, up around the $350,000 and north of that. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Boot Camp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we picked the brains of Tim McGibbon, CEO of the REI New South Wales. Now, originally qualifying as a lawyer and accountant, Tim joined the REI 15 years ago and has been the CEO now for 13 years. He's an extremely vocal advocate for the real estate industry. And over the past few years, he's had a couple of stouches with the New South Wales state government on a number of issues. Recently, he's been very vocal in his call for self-regulation, which we'll get into in a moment. And his latest battle has been over stamp duty reform. And these are both very interesting topics that have really fired him up. And when you hear what he has to say, you'll be fired up too. Welcome, Tim. We have some huge elephants in the room to talk about today. (laughs) Good to be here, Veronica. And congratulations, Veronica. That's the first time you've ever got through the intro without a mistake. Well, uh, well, let me shatter your uh, let me shatter your morning for you. Um, unfortunately, Veronica said that we wanted self regulation. It's not quite right. Oh, we want right. Uh, we, so. Uh, what we what we're seeking is uh, is to work m- far more closely with a competent regulator. So we want we want partial uh, self regulation. But, but currently, our problem is we're working with a regulator that doesn't understand the industry whatsoever. Um, real estate is a, uh, is a low-frequency, high-dollar-value, uh, complex transaction. And where, mm. where the Office of Fair Trading has their competencies is in the uh, high-frequency, low-dollar-value, low-commercial um, com- um, complexity area. That's where they are. So, so we're lumped in with uh, hairdressers, uh, the coffee shops, uh, tattoo parlors, entertainingly, um, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, and a variety of other uh, tow truck drivers is another one I can think of. So we're we're in that space, and and frankly, we just don't belong there. We uh, we need a dedicated um, uh, commissioner, somebody who has who has competencies in our area and has experience in them. We need them to come from industry and will work with us. Fair trading, fair trading just work against us at every turn. That's, I'm going to be the one that's asking very dumb questions today because I don't really understand this issue and I haven't got the, the knowledge there. Why are they an issue in the first place? 
Uh, well, they're, they're an issue because they, uh, it's like anybody that doesn't know what they're doing that's put in charge of something. That probably sums it up. They, they actually think they understand the industry, but they don't. Now, I'll give, you, I'll give you a classic example. Years and years ago, or some years ago, I should say, back in the day, as they like to say, you had to go to TAFE for three years to become a real estate agent mm. because it was a complex area. Now, as the world has, has gotten more complicated and legislation has become more complicated, more demanding, the Office of Fair Trading believes you can become a real estate agent in under a week. Now, why do they do that? And let me say that again, just so that we, we're making sure there wasn't any mistake, under a week you can become a real estate agent. And I always like to say, what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> yes. so, so Could you get your own real estate license and run your own trust account and set up a business within under a week? Um, no, you would have to. If you walked in off the street, it's probably going to take you about five to six weeks, depending on which training provider you go to. Yep. And if we can talk about training providers, those ones that uh, have a, uh, a point in the market, their point of difference is... Uh, is cheap and uh, cheap and fast, yeah. So, so you could be running your own trust account in uh, certainly in under six weeks, and employing people that have been uh, trained for less than a week. And again, back to my rhetorical question: What, what could, could go, go wrong? wrong? <laughs> so, so, so the question you, that uh, I think that is the threshold question in this whole fair trading debacle is: uh, is why do they do that? Well. They serve, they serve the God of competition exclusively. Mm. So they say, every time we say to them, we want to improve standards, we want to improve education, they put their hand up immediately and say, no, it's a barrier to entry. That's mm. a barrier to entry. That would reduce competition. That would be bad. We love competition. It's healthy market influence. Absolutely. However... It's got to be competent competition. You've got mm. equal competition, don't you? I mean, because this is a thing. Competition is well, from, I guess, their theoretical position is, well, more comp- competition means a better outcome for consumers. But what they don't realise is that when you've got incompetent competition, that is definitely not a better outcome for no. consumers. And, and we currently have an 80% churn. So 80% of the people who come in leave virtually immediately. Um, because they don't know what they're doing. So we're, we're failing the consumer, most importantly, and we're also failing the people that want a career in real estate in the property services industry. We're failing them. That's they, really interesting about 80%. So that's 80% of people that get licensed as a real estate agent in a year. The next year, they're not around. Sort correct, of thing. correct. So they yeah. get the certificate of registration, not, not the license. But at, at the end of the day, the certificate of registration person, as far as the consumer is concerned, receives the same real estate services in the, in, in the management or sale of their property, their, their biggest asset. And this is another one of the things that I think we need to talk about in relation to the property industry. The residential market is about seven and a half or, or eight trillion dollars. I've never bothered to find out what a trillion is, but it sounds like a, a very, lot. very big number. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at that and then the commercial market and et cetera, Real estate is the, is the, dare I say it, the elephant in the room. Mm. So you've got two challenges with increasing standards. Though. You've got to increase the current agents to a certain standard, and then you've got to increase for new entrants to a certain standard as well. What would you, what would be your kind of utopia? Yeah, so, so that's an excellent question. So we have to educate people post-admission, and that's, that's a challenge. Um, and that and that will be a challenge. I don't know that I have a uh, bullet point answer to that, but certainly 
the areas of um, the opportunity, I should say, would be in the continuing professional development space. That's that's where we would have to target that. And it will be, it's not something we're going to snap our fingers and be able to do. The the better opportunity is when we're bringing people in um, and, um, and and educate them properly. Give, give them the understanding about um, about the give them the understanding about the product they're selling. I've gone into into homes and asked uh, agents about the uh, is this a double brick or a brick veneer home, and uh, you know they look at me blankly. Um, they haven't been taught about their product, and uh, and that's a challenge as well. And this again is fair trading because I don't think fair trading could answer that question. And if they don't can't, then uh, they believe no one else has to. But People, people have a right to understand the product. Absolutely. I mean, not only that, though. I mean, even within the industry, so forget fair training for a minute. It's difficult. Within the industry, it is difficult because you've got people that think they're an expert because they sell property in their particular area and then they start giving investment advice. So this is multi-laid in terms of the problems in not properly educating and having an awareness that there are certain skill sets that you need Mm. to acquire. And if you haven't even, you're not even aware that you don't have them, you're not going to look to acquire them. And then you've got an office of fair trading that's quite happy to dumb everything down. And they have done the past. And even by grandfathering all the people that have got these, you know, cornflake packet licenses, they get a green light straight into the new regime when this gets active. You know, it's not like they then have an additional bar to hop over in order to to make sure that their qualifications are of a certain calibre. Yep. It's actually everyone who's currently got an inadequate educational background, they just get sent straight yeah. through, straight through, you get a licence, a full so, licence. So recently, uh, Minister Keane came up with a, a really good idea as far as competition is concerned. Minister Keane said, we'll de-licence auctioneers. So that means anybody that has a nice strong voice and fancies themselves on a, uh, on a Saturday morning could have been an auctioneer without any training whatsoever. And that just in itself demonstrates how, um, how little that they know about, about the process. I mean, auctioneering might look to the outsider as being some sort of theatrical performance, which is, which is where I think the, uh, the Office of Fair Trading and, and for that matter, the minister sees it. But it is the making of a contract for a very expensive piece of property, and it is complex. And I can assure you, whilst it might look theoret- uh, theatre um, on the day, when you get down to the Supreme Court when one goes wrong, not a lot mm. of theatre down there. And you have to understand, you have to understand what you're doing very clearly. And, yep. be, and behind the, the, dare I call it, the entertainment, there is, a, there is a very, very serious process going on. And people need to, un, to be able to react and react very quickly when something does go wrong in an auction. Yeah, David Scholes, you know, spoke about that in quite yeah. a lot of detail in one of our episodes, you know, and how important the auctioneer's role is. I guess just back to the professional, you know, education. I mean, in financial advice as an industry, you know, I was kind of always going, look, why have all these people got this certified financial planner? Because it was very easy to get it, you know, you know, say 10 years ago, it was like off the back of a cornflakes packet. You know, that's kind of the stories out there. And then all new advisors would have to do a lot more training to get it. But what kind of has happened now, there's this kind of new education reform is, and basically everyone's got to have a degree or degree equivalent education by 2024. So it's five years. And what it's going to probably do is halve the industry, you know? So it's probably going to halve the amount of advisors over the next five years because many are just going to say, that's just too hard. But to lift financial advice to a profession, there has to be a point in time that we're aiming towards and we give people enough time to do the work, otherwise they're out. Mm. And you know, I, I personally believe there's no point in trying to stop 
people coming into the industry saying, you guys have got to do this. If all the people, once they're in there, if their person they're working next to has only been, you know, had to do a two week course. So you've either got to do it for everyone or, you know, it's just not fair. Right. So, you know, because those people are still going to be out working and maybe they're not they're the 20% that do survive each year, but that doesn't mean they still don't, you know, it takes years to probably get the education. Yeah. I, I, um, I haven't turned my mind to, uh, to whether it's fair or not, but what I do know is that if you don't have somebody that is trained properly, then they are exposing consumers to risk. Mm. That, that's the reality of it. And that's what we're fighting to try and improve. We, we, need, we need to be able to give people a career in real estate so they have to have the right education and the right experience, supervised experience, to come up to the standard. And, and the challenge for us right now is actually being able to convince fair trading. We're actually having to train them so they understand what the competency look like. And, and they're not interested in learning that. So we need to get out of there. We, we want to go to another location. I think Premier and Cabinet is where I would put us. If you're making a $10 billion a year contribution to the state's coffers, as we are, then I think, I think we, uh, we deserve some sort of focus. <laughs> You know, like I know um, people who have clients uh, uh, as uh, solicitors and accountants or the rest of it, they say, well, they're all equal, but some are more equal than others. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the reality of it is if you've got an industry that's uh, putting out $10 billion uh, a year into uh, in that, we're, we do require a little bit of focus. Another little fun fact for you, we are bigger than, um, than the mining industry, tourism, and I think there's one other all added together. Wow. Yeah, that it's is interesting. a fun fact. Mm. I love your segue there as well because that's on another bugbear, you know, that I, I'm sure you have is around stamp duty and they haven't mm-hmm. moved for, what, 30 years or something? Oh, 32, uh, but right. who's counting? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they haven't, and it, it's unconscionable what's going on. Mm. Uh, so the amount of stamp duty that is paid on a, on a property now is, is just disgraceful. So this, the, the stamp duty rates, as I said, haven't moved for 32 years. And when they were set, when they were set at that time, the then treasurer got up and, and made some, you know, as they do, made a nice passionate speech about things. Mm-hmm. And the treasurer said, these higher rates will only apply to the very expensive properties um, up around the $350,000 and north of that. So that, <laughs> that, was the, that was the rates that was the bracket. So we're talking so the thresholds here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So the first threshold is fourteen thousand. Now, I don't know. I don't know how many of you have bought a fourteen thousand dollar property lately, but I, unfortunately, I haven't. No. Um, and but you know, back in nineteen eighty six, uh, in the in the regional areas, it probably was. You probably could have bought something for around. For around that price, yeah, it, as ridiculous mm. as it may sound, but yeah. um, I'm from Broken Hill, and I know there was, uh, uh, you know, properties out there that, uh, believe it or not, uh, you could have uh, you could have bought for that sort of money. Even in the capital cities, it would only be in the twenties. Yeah, well, back in those days, so so the median house price back then, <laughs> well, isn't it? The, yeah. well, the median the median house price back then was somewhere around about ninety thousand yeah. dollars. Now it's yeah, knocking right. on the door of a million dollars. So that goes to show and how the thresholds far- haven't changed. Correct. Now our current treasurer got up and, and patted himself on the back and said, we're going to index these, uh, these rates and, oh, how good am I? Uh, the reality of it is that if he wants to index them, index them all the way back to 1986 because that's how far they're out of date. Mm. So don't, Have you done the numbers on yeah, that? Absolutely. 
We'll put, we'll, put, we'll put the link in the show notes Abs- to that. <laughs> Absolutely, I've done the it's numbers. It's actually alarming. When I yeah. saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. what roughly, I mean, you, you know, I don't know the numbers off the top of your head, but on a million-dollar house now, you pay roughly, let's call it 5%. That's the number I use. It might be four and a half, let's call it. Four and a bit, But, yeah. um, you know, what, what would that be under these... If it had been indexed, if it had been indexed, yeah, I'm I'm sure I've done the calculations, but I haven't uh, I haven't me- uh, committed them to memory. But <laughs> as uh, Veronica said, maybe we could put it up as a as yeah. a link if people are interested in looking at it. I put it do a comparison, right? Oh, like I've this. done yeah. I've done the comparison. Don't worry, we've yeah. got it. We've got it. So yeah, we'll, we'll so put it up in the show you, notes, and yeah. it's well worth looking at. It is really mm. interesting. So I'm I'm afraid uh, that when the uh, when the treasurer is seeking uh, accolades and and my thanks. Um, I re- I'm going to retain that until they uh, index it back to uh, 1986, where where it should have been commenced. There is an argument, though, that stamp duty creates lower volatility in the property market, which is actually a good thing for driving longer term returns. Because you know, if if your transaction costs of trading something like shares, for example, um, are very low then you're more likely to come in and out of the market. You know, so if stamp duty was much lower, let's say 1%, um, and your selling cost you could limit to say 1% or 1.5%, then you're more enticed to just go, look, I'm going to buy this property, flip it in a year's time because my transaction costs are lower. And so you're going to create more speculation by doing so. Um, have you thought about, you know, that impact? Because, you know, the one side of having higher stamp duty, you're basically disincentivizing people to trade property, which is actually good news for property investment as a whole, because it means that people are no longer kind of speculating on it. Yeah, uh, I think that a, a good tax, if, if that exists, a good tax is a tax that is broad based. Okay, so dare I say it might sound like an oxymoron, but the GST is a good tax because it is broad-based. The stamp duty is a very narrow-based tax. Now, I didn't pay any stamp duty this year, uh, and the reason for that, I didn't buy, I didn't buy any property. Mm. So for those poor people who did buy property this year, they've paid my tax for me because um, they're, they're, the, they're the narrow base. So that's the first comment I make. So I think we need to look at broad-based Tax solutions. Are you going to go and to land tax? No, I'm not. Um, and and the reason I'm not going to go there is I'm a little bit sick and tired of the property market being the only creature, or the only asset class that gets taxed for everything. Oh, look, I've got a blog on this, and my accountant helped me with it, and it really is outrageous. The property investors get hit with more taxes than any other investor. And uh, I'll put the link in the show notes to that yeah. as well. And it's, it's it's really abominable. And and at the same time, we cop the blame. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a negative gearing, you know. We cop the blame for affordability. And because, you know, there's a new organisation called PICA, so P-I-C-A, yep. and I'll put the link for that in the notes as well. And I think individual investors should join that yep. because that's, that's looking at a national lobby group on behalf of individual investors. And because we're not companies, we're not corporate investors, we don't have – the power of, you know, the, the lobbying power. And I think that that makes investors an absolute soft target. I think Polly's love that. Yeah. So, so the other part of your, the answer to, my, to your question, I've said it about broad base. The other thing is that tax should not be a consideration of a transaction. It should be a consequence. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. We all got up and, and came to work this morning in the knowledge that we would have to pay tax. All right. I knew it. You know, I still got out of bed. I still came to work in the knowledge that I have to pay tax. So it's a consequence of what I'm doing. But a lot of people now are saying, um, I won't transact property because 
because of tax. Now, that's a bad tax. When, when it stifle, stifles um, the, a, a transaction, be any transaction, when it stifles the transaction, then it is, it is a bad tax. So, so people are saying, I, I really need to sell my property because it doesn't respond to my requirements. Either my family has grown and I need a bigger place or I'm an empty nester and I could have a smaller place, but I'm not going to sell and buy because, mm. because yeah. of tax. Now, that's, that's a bad tax. Yeah, but I mean, why why were you not a fan of then broad-based tax being land tax? What's your issue well, with that? Because I, well, the reason I don't like the uh, the land tax idea, it's another burden on property. Surely, surely we can find some other asset class that we can tax to make a contribution. Surely we can do that. The oh, share, so the, the it's share market. The only one that's seven trillion dollars. Yeah, well, well, no, no. I mean, the share market is a uh, completely free of taxation, except in capital gains. So there's there's no equivalent of, of uh, council rates. There's no equivalent of the Section 94, which I uh, com- uh, develop a contribution with, which I think is now 7-Eleven. Um, and there is no land tax equivalent in the share market. There's no stamp duty in the share market. Um, so but, I mean, you know, I guess that- don't, don't, you, don't you think, don't you think that some other area of the economy could bear could bear some burden of the tax of the of the tax required. But I mean, there's a lot of people that argue that the share market is the thing that you know people should be investing in rather than property because property doesn't actually, besides providing housing for people and an income for a renter for an investor, is it? And and maybe the building of it, the construction industry. You know, investing in that is really only supporting really the construction industry and the government helping to with migration. But you know, where you, when you invest in the share market, you're investing in companies. You're allowing startups to happen. You're allowing the com- the economy to be more productive. So, really, if you were going to to tax one, you'd much prefer to encourage people to invest in companies that create jobs and create grow the economy than propping up a construction industry. Well, uh, the the share the share market, the equities market, is less than in, in total. All of it is less than three trillion dollars. That's that's the first point. And no matter how good your uh, share portfolio is that you buy, it doesn't put a roof over anyone's head. It won't keep the rain out. And when you said, when you said to me that, um, that the property industry, all, all it does is provide housing, that's a pretty big, <laughs> that's a pretty big statement to roll off the tongue. I mean, um, I'm pretty happy with, uh, with my house, uh, my roof over my head. So I think, I think the property industry... To, it creates um, it creates suburbs. Uh, those suburbs become into uh, communities, uh, and they become into local villages. It's the fabric that holds our society together. Now, the share market, yeah, great. We we um, we put some money into the share market. Probably all of us through our uh, uh, yeah. our superannuation and this sort of stuff, and that's great. It, it requires some investment in there, but I, I think we go down a very very dangerous path. When we start to make housing um, unaffordable, when we start to start to drive investment away from housing, I, I think that is uh, very dangerous. But isn't the other argument is that the way that tax policy is and the way that the government think about things, they want to encourage property investment. And the reason why the property market's worth seven trillion and the share market is three trillion, which is quite unique, other countries in the world are the opposite, is because it has been more incentivizing people to invest in housing than the share market. You know, because of bank leverage, because of the way the tax policies are set, 
So, you know, that's what's the reason why housing is unaffordable is it is what it is because of bank policy and because of the government's tax policies. So, you know, we have been investing in housing. That's the, been the whole incentive of it all. Well, I, th- I think the reason that most people will invest in housing before they invest in the share market is, is back to my original point. Uh, I, need, I need a roof over my head. So that's the incentive for me to do that. I also need to eat. Um, and so, so you're talking about the basics of life, um, food, um, water, and, uh, and shelter. So this is, this is the stuff that goes all the way back to the Stone Age. You know? mm-hmm. and, and I always like this, uh, I, I wish it was my comment, but it's not, and I heard this one, that real estate is the longest conversation on the planet. So we've been talking about real estate all the way back to the Stone Age. Mm. People have had an interest in what's uh, what's my real estate uh, all the way back there. Well before the Banking Royal Commission and compound interest, <laughs> we were talking about real estate. And uh, and and again, I th- I think it has to be an absolute focus. And this is one of the reasons I want to get away from fair trading and I want to start dealing with somebody who is competent, somebody who can support the industry. And we need a holistic. Um, we need a holistic solution here. Uh, the, are other states doing it any better? Well, uh, yes, they are. Tasmania is probably the leading one. Um, New Zealand is very, very good as well. But entertaining. That's our favourite state of Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Across the ditches, they we like to say. want to move there now. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, so I had a look at their system. So, I, But what I discovered the other day, and it's, I, I always find this entertaining because it, we're going around in circles, which is very, very common. So to go back to the auctioneering thing, back in 1993, they, they de-licensed auctioneers, so they thought it was a good idea. Then they brought it back in 2002, and now our current minister said we should get rid of it in 2018. So, so, so if you go back to about 1990 or something a little earlier than that, we had the, the correct regulatory environment back then through the housing minister and, and there was legislation that created a council of, of agents and other property experts that advised the minister um, of the day and, and worked with the regulator. So what I'm trying to do is, uh, is go back to the future. So, um, and that, and that's, that's where I see the solution. But I can tell you, I can tell you, it is such a battle. We, we're try, we are trying to take the property services industry to a profession and we're making an application to the Professional Standards Authority. As an, it, there is an incredible amount of work. We've been on the journey for, oh, for about 18 months, gathering information, doing it. And the biggest single problem we've got on that journey to try and get there is government, is, is the fair trading. They, they are trying at every turn to undermine that. and they, it does my head in. What's the incentive for people to bring regulation to the property market? You know, you've got developers don't really want it. You know, you've got the government doesn't really want it. The state agents sometimes don't really want it. They like to, you know, the more regulation, the more hurdles they've got to go through. I guess I just wonder, you know, there's a reason why the property market as a cent is unregulated because that's what props it up. If you bring in more regulation around what developers and sales agents and spruikers and, and that is the where the government makes all its money, you know. So, so there is um, there is good regulation uh, and that supports the industry and protects consumers. Then there is uh, uh, regulation that does just the opposite, and then there is politically 
uh, motivated regulation. So, so various political figures want to get up on their hind legs and say, look at me, look at me. I've just done something incredibly uh, so that you'll all love me for it. Um, and it, and it hasn't got a lot of common sense that sits behind. It hasn't got any positive outcomes for the market, and it hasn't got any positive outcomes for consumers. So, the, to me, there is there is one guiding principle here in relation to regulation: what it should achieve, and that and that is consumer confidence. Now, consumer confidence comes from transparency uh, of the market. And the other, the other side of it is through that, again, it heavily related, the hygiene of the market. So there is always going to be people in every trade, calling or profession that, um, that that particular industry didn't want. That's always going to be the case. But if we have proper regulation that can be enforced um, and, and drives consumer outcomes and, and we're able to have a relationship between industry and government working working cooperatively, then, then we, can, we can deliver better consumer outcomes. But we need, to remove, we need to remove the politics out of it. And most importantly, we need to remove those people who don't know what's going on, mm. a.k.a. fair trading. Mm. What about um, you know, property spruikers, I guess? People who are selling properties to investors because, or because they're, they're selling it on the dream and what the potential returns and capital growth rates of X and depreciation and, you know, and they're out there. We all know about it. You know, what would you like to see happen to, because consumers are the ones dealing the brunt of this and they don't know it till 10 years down the line or even three years down the line and they get some bad news or they, they find out the property's gone down in value and it all goes back to the person selling them the property. Um, excellent question. Now again, this is this is another classic example of where property is um, is not properly regulated because people don't know what's going on. So you can explain this to me. If if I go down to uh, the bank and you were talking about uh, financial advisors, I go down to a financial advisor <laughs> and I say to a financial advisor, "I've got a chunk of money. Why don't you advise me on where it's got to go?" Now this financial advisor is giving me investment advice yep. and the investment advice um, I'm going to rely on for my uh, returns and all the rest of it. They have to be properly trained, educated, regulated, all the rest of it. However, if I go down to a property spruker and they say, you want to make an investment, that's terrific. I've got absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. I reckon you should do this. And, and to me, and this is my question of you then, what is the difference between me making an investment in the property market and me making an investment in fixed interest or shares or some other area still looks like an investment to me? Oh, I would love that. I would love that, you know, there wouldn't be a property seminar, a property investment seminar or property clubs because you're right. They, right now they can just sit in this little bubble and give out all this investment advice to people who that are looking for investment advice and it's packaged up in, you know, you've got to buy one of my 20 properties that I'm trying to sell out of 10 million properties because they're the best ones for you I know, and they I get away with it. Picked. The other <laughs> side of the coin is they go to a financial advisor and this is my bit of a bugbear within the industry is they go to a financial advisor, they sit down and they want some investment advice and the way the financial advice industry has been structured for 20 years is property just has zero part to play in that. And there's been many reasons for that because the advisor really has seen their asset or their skill set is managing money and property is not part of how they manage money because they can't get 
A, paid on it, um, and B, they can't build a sustainable business on recommending property. So, But it's also, it's, I mean, like, I, you know, I'm a qualified property investment advisor. Um, I'm a licensed real estate agent. I've sold property. I've bought property. Um, I invest a lot of my own time learning and researching. Um, there are so many schools of thought, most of it untested, and a lot of it driven around short-termism, you know, which is my new word, short-termism. Mm. Property needs to be a long-term play, largely because of back to stamp duty and those those big costs that are associated with it, the amount of risk, the amount of borrowing, the amount of, you know, you know to, to put all your eggs in one basket, you really can't be thinking of trading property. You know, that's, that's a specific type of person that can speculate and, and there needs to be a distinction drawn between the two, speculation and investment. But even in terms of fundamentals, there is so much disagreement and there's no... There's no, there's no um, benchmark. There's no universal acceptance in terms of what mm. are the principles that need to be adhered to. Yeah. There's none of that. And then I'll go to a, a sales agent, and I was guilty of this when I was a sales agent too, and, and you, oh, this is a really good investment. Well, I love asking the question, why? Yeah. Well, because it's a property and because you could get a tenant in there. Yeah. And that's about the, the extent of it. And I'm like, well, actually, a good investment requires a hell of a lot more than that to be considered prior to purchasing it, yeah. um, a lot more. And most sales agents don't even know. So this goes beyond, it's not just spruikers mm. that are making a buck out of wishful thinking. It's also sales agents who, who just simply don't understand that they don't know. Well, they either. can market a pro- property, hey, a great investment, can't they? That's, that's, they're allowed to use that yeah. terminology? Well, um, they are not allowed to give investment advice, um, agents, no. No, no but so, they no. can say this property is a good well, investment. Well, it's a, it's a, well, again, what, where they does that, do. I, I think, well, they may, <laughs> some may. Yeah, you say um, it all the time. Some, I do, well, yeah. <laughs> some may say that and express an opinion about an, an area or, or, and some may be able to, uh, demonstrate the history of it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you, if you demonstrate history, you say, well, this property has, is being achieving, so it is, is achieving currently a rental of X. If you buy it, um, this is the price you'd be paying, so we can do a calculation between, between the rent and the, uh, and the cost of the property, and we can have a look at the current investment return. Now, what the future looks like is where the danger comes in when you start talking about the future, and this is where your investment advisor comes in. You said a second ago, though, um, that investment advisors don't give advice in relation to property. That's kind of right because they do give advice in relation to derivatives of property, so, so property trusts, for example. So they can look at the returns of uh, uh, of an, there's a number of property trusts out there that are trading that are trading trading in direct property. So this is not quite the is, same though, is it? Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it has a property. Uh, it, the genesis is in property, but they are a derivative, and you're trading the derivatives. And a, as a percentage of asset classes and a percentage of actual funds under management that they actually advise on, it would be extremely small. And it's as also a commercial of, property. It's not, it's not residential. Yeah. No, that's right. Mm. And, that's and right. so, you know, and fundamentally what happens is, you know, I've been an advisor for 11 years and, you know, met, you know, hundreds of advisors over the years. And, you know, because there's no training, there's no education on property, a client will walk in and they say, you know, they've got a home and their biggest asset is their home. And an advisor doesn't really know what to do there, what to say to them mm. around their home. You know, do you want to upgrade? Do you want to renovate? Should you renovate? Should you, are you going to overcapitalize? You know, where are you going to retire? Like those conversations around property just don't really exist out there. And then you go, well, they've got an investment property and an advisor says, do you want to sell that or do you want to keep it? So, <laughs> so if we distill this conversation down to, uh, down to its, uh, 
uh, bare minimum. What, what we're currently talking about here, in my view, are two things. Firstly, we're talking about a concern for consumer detriment, okay? And, and that's, that's driving this conversation. And, and the next question we're asking ourselves is how, how, do, we, how do we address that? And that mm. is through regulation, that regulation that will support the, the industry and be able to exclude those people that, um, that are doing the wrong thing by consumers. And that's back to what I was talking yep. about, the hygiene and the confidence that needs to be in the market. And, and for the good operators out there, for the good operators, that's what they want. Mm. They, they don't want the cowboys running through. And, and that's the danger we have now is when the property market um, improves, is on, a, is on a roll, we have people doing the one-day course, in they come, let's give real estate a go. And, uh, and then they exit. I, I speak to a lot of the, uh, the good agents that have been around for a thousand years, and they, they will tell you that this is their market. Yeah. When, when the market is flat or even dropping, that's their mm. market because, because all the cowboys go and, uh, and that's their market. Well, they always, you know, obviously there's a say things in swings and roundabouts and, you know, and things come and go ebbs and flow. And I mean, that's what's going to happen, right? Like the construction industry, people aren't going to be able to sell stuff unless it's really good quality stock because investors aren't going buying blindly. And, you know, the real estate industry is probably going to, you know, lose half of its agents, let's call it, because, you know, they're not going to have enough sales to, there's low, lower transactions, there's lower volume, better, the better agents are picking that up and they're just going to probably leave. So I guess... You know, maybe the market will sort it all out anyway. It does. That's my point. Yeah. Exactly yeah. my point. Finds yeah. its level. <laughs> there, there, there was interesting, I mean, you guys put out a press release recently about uh, trust account issue. Yeah. So what happened there? So so this is another one of the removing barriers. So, so Fair Trading came up with this really good idea. They said, you only have to, to lodge your trust account. So you, you still have to go and get your trust account. That was about four years or so ago. You, only, you have to go and get your trust account done. And, and it would be an offence not to get your trust account done. Before our listeners, and, can you just explain what a trust account yeah, is? Because, okay. you, know, uh, uh, you know, it is quite confusing for so some people. If you, if you, essentially, if you hold other people's money, then so a good example here would be where somebody uh, is paying a 10% deposit. Quite often the, the agent would hold a 10% deposit and there's rent monies coming in. But agents aren't the only ones who have trust money. Solicitors will have uh, trust money. Uh, travel agents have trust money. And all of those people are required to do exactly the same thing, an independent audit of your trust account to make sure that there is nothing inappropriate happening with your trust account. Because it can be very tempting to somebody who may not be highly ethical, who may be in financial difficulty, to look at that trust account money and think, well, I might just borrow a bit out of it to cover off some shortfalls in my business, which is completely and utterly against the law, right? But it's tempting for certain operators to do that and they've been caught out at times. Correct. So Fair Trading said, you've still got to go and get your trust account audit done. Um, and if somebody detects that you've been doing something wrong, this is your independent auditor, detects that there is something wrong going on with your trust account, then you have to give it to us and we'll come around and beat you up. Um, so, and it would be an offence not to get it done. Now, so the analogy might be, I'm tearing down the, uh, uh, the freeway and uh, I look at my speedometer and find out I'm doing 160 kilometres an hour and I'll pull over, ring the police and let them know. So it, 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 <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. So, so what happened was 
that people unfortunately started to, as you say, um, illegally and from my, from my view, certainly immorally, putting their hand into their trust account for whatever reason. And of course, they, um, they, they didn't get their audit done. That's the best way to conceal it. They didn't get their audit done. Um, and these problems have gone on. Now, there's been some horrendous amounts of, uh, mm. of trust account. There's, there's a very public one. They're looking at about $3.7 million. Uh, and the reason that that's happened is because it went on and on and on. So the, the people involved in this didn't, didn't um, obviously get a trust account done. And uh, as a consequence of that, it was never detected. Now, would, uh, would the, um, the system I'm talking about, having it done annually, have stopped it? Well, maybe, maybe not. But if it, let's assume that it didn't stop um, them putting their hand into the trust account. What it would have done, had, had they done the system properly, had they followed the same system that was in place for a thousand years before and is in place for the solicitors and the travel agents, it would have minimised the amount of money that's gone missing. It would have minimised it. Now, but it's a bit like a Ponzi scheme, right? So, like, you know, the money's in there for six weeks and then you should settle. And so as long as you've got that money in six weeks' time, then everything looks fine, you know? And so if you've got other deposits coming in, you know, as long as you can keep this cash above board, um, then everything seems fine. But it's still, you know, you can't settle a loan because the money's not in the trust account. And then they go, uh-oh, and then things hit the fan, the loan can't hmm, settle, yeah. and everyone starts worrying. So, you know, a lot of real estate agents, if if they are struggling with cash flow issues like paying the rent, paying the, the wages and things like that, um, and they've, you know, business is going to shut down tomorrow. They go, oh, that's right, we've got to sale next week. And it's just too tempting, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. look, if you touch your trust account for a solitary cent, then it is illegal. And, yeah. and, and can it, you go to jail for it? Correct. Mm. And this is, it's a good point because this is the bit that is entertaining. <laughs> I think I think is entertaining. And this gives you some insight into fair trading. So they, as I said to you, they said you must, you must get your trust account audit done. And if you don't do it, you will get a fine. It could be. $2,200 or even more if you don't do it. Oh, so right. there's a, there's a mm. fine. So this person who's got their, oh, who's got their $3.7 no. million um, uh, trust account uh, fraud, if they don't tell Fair Trading about this, then they're, they're potentially facing a $2,200 fine. However, when the Fair Trading do find out about their uh, $3.7 million uh, fraud, they they'll go, go to, to jail. jail. <laughs> yes. So, so the minister's currently running around saying, "Oh no, no, the institute's wrong. You have to go and get your audit done." Well, he's right, but I would rather pay a twenty-two hundred dollar fine than have two or three years in jail. So, to, shouldn't to, it be fraud from because it's not your money, right? You're holding it in trust for other people, so it's, it should be fraud from the moment you touch it. Absolutely, and so you mm, should be, absolutely. You shouldn't be paying twenty thousand. That yeah. should be reported to the police because that's what fraud is, right? And so, and, and that's exactly where it goes. I mean, you you go to jail if you touch your trust account, you go to jail. And this and this is the bit where I, maybe entertaining wasn't the right word, but uh, it, it, as soon as you touch your trust account, you are you are looking at jail time. And but not doing your audit, not doing your audit, which is the mechanism of being able to conceal it, there is a small fine. I mean, yeah. it's just it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it is yeah. ridiculous. Now, now, I know, and Minister knows, that they made a dreadful error here. Now, how do we know that? It's because they've reversed the decision. They've gone back to what we said to them. At the time they did it, we said, this is crazy. Yeah. And, and, and they said, oh, no, no, we know better. 
back to my earlier point, they don't know what they're doing. We know better. Um, but now they've gone back, reversed it back out. And there's, there's some more entertainment here. So in March of this year, in March of this year, they reversed it. And uh, that piece of legislation hasn't gone live yet, so it hasn't been proclaimed. And in late October, they passed more legislation, which still hasn't been also proclaimed, and that repealed the legislation in March, which hadn't, which hadn't gone live. Oh, so, God. so I'll play they, a game of you know, it's like um, reverse on um, a reverse. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you've got you've up. got people in there doing doing really really crazy things. Why thing. are they doing? Why are they? Because playing? They, don't, they don't know what they're doing. Anybody anybody doing anything that they don't know what they're doing are dangerous. Yes, and they should be checking in with industry anyway, just to say, well, look, you know. This is what we think is a problem, and we this is we're proposing to change things. And it's like, why do you perceive a problem? You know, so, so the, is, the it, swimming... is it back to their barriers to entry? Oh, it's, yeah. it's a burden on the industry to have yeah. to get these audits done. So, so the audits they said was uh, red tape, but you still got to do your audit. So, so in the process, what you just ha- you had to go and get your audit, which which you do, and then you had to lodge your audit with Fair Trading. All right. And, um, and that's, that's what had to happen. And that's what will be happening going forward once the legislation is proclaimed at some point in our lives. Um, <laughs> but, but what they just said, to get rid of the red tape, you'll still have to do your audit, but you don't have to give yeah. it to us. Mm. So unless, of course, you're ripping your trust account off. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but the only people that saved red tape in that was fair trading because, yes. because they're the people who didn't have to process yeah. all the applications. Yeah. So then nobody else got a benefit. Mm. And the consumer's now out of pocket. And when this uh, 3.7 uh, uh, it went down, Fair Trading uh, said, oh, no, well, we're not going to compensate you for that out of our fund because it's more money than, than our fund will permit. So oh, that's a bit sad. So we said to them, really? Really? How, um, and we met and met with them and we said, really, is that what you're going to do? Because in our view, you caused the majority of this problem. Mm. So they went away and came back to me and said, Oh, we've got further legal advice and, and now we'll pay them. Right. Because there is a fund, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there is a fund. So there's a fund to compensate the poor people who lost their money when it was ripped off yeah. by the agent in this case, these cases. But also, you know, I remember back, I did the trust accounting at TAFE. It was two whole big, long yeah. courses. It took a year to do trust accounting. Um, and then because I had one subject left to go, I never got my licence through TAFE. <laughs> they changed the rules and they added seven subjects to my load. It was like I only had one to go. And the next thing, I was offered a five-night course to get my licence, two grand, back in the day. And, and I went, oh, why would I go to TAFE and do seven course, seven modules, which is mm. going to take me a year to finish instead mm. of just one term, one subject? Um, I can go and do a five-night course, which is what I did. And the trust accounting module at that five-night course was a Abominable. I was the only person who knew anything about trust accounting purely because I'd done the mm. two modules before. They rushed through it in what, a three hour session and then gave you an open book exam at the end of it. But people didn't even know where to look in the open book exam for the answers because trust accounting can't be taught in, you know, less than two hours. And so they gave the answers That's common. for the assessment. Yeah. That's like, common. They, 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 put, they put it up onto, the, uh, up onto the blackboard or whatever it is these yeah. days. And uh, you write them down, happy mm. days. And, yeah. and that's, what, that's what's going on. I mean, that's so that, you know, you talk about training providers, right? But you, 80% of, you know, real estate agents don't make it. That means 80% have still done the course, you know, and they've still paid for the course. Oh, the, so, the, you know, the, the, education, <laughs> the education company is loving it because they mm. get their two grand or one that's grand right. or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you spoke very early on about, you mentioned housing 
unaffordability or affordability or whatever line you sit on. Um, what would you, th- you know, coming up with recommendations on how you would improve that rather than say removing negative gearing, what's other things the government could do? Yeah. And, and what a great question, because I, I always love this, that government wants to blame somebody mm. for, uh, for the unaffordability. Um, and, and they're, they're, and this is the politics that I spoke about earlier. They'll try and find somebody to blame and we can all focus our, our disappointment on, on this particular group. And they've done that with foreign investors and these sorts of things. So again, another little fun fact for you. Um, when you're looking at buying a new property, be it a, a unit or a, um, a freestanding property in a development, over 40%, over 40% of the cost the consumer pays in a very non-transparent way is government charges, government costs, over 40%. Wow. So let's just do some numbers on that because <laughs> percentages sometimes confuse people and you don't realise how big it is. So mm. 40%... You know, that's our forty cents, you know. On a five hundred thousand dollar house on land package, that's two hundred grand. On a million dollar two bedroom apartment in the city, that's four hundred grand the government gets. That, that's got federal and state? No, that's that's across the board. Right. Okay. So, so and this is this is back to my earlier proposition when you said, Oh, well, let's get rid of stamp duty and we'll and we'll load up land tax. I'm saying, well, come on, why don't we find something else to tax? So so the the property asset, real estate, is the only asset class that is taxed by every level of government. You got you have rates and charges, mm. you've got section ninety four, whatever the seven eleven now, then you've got land tax, stamp duty, and GST on mm. new property. So everyone is there. Now if you look at a development, the the developer comes in and buys the buys the property, pays stamp duty. So so that doesn't go away. That just goes mm. onto the price. Then they're holding the property for a period of time. So they've got council rates. That goes onto the price. Then they've got land tax while they're holding the property. That goes onto the price. Then they get the builder in to, uh, to build it, and the builder has to pay payroll tax. And I'm sorry, but that goes onto the price. Then there is GST. That goes onto the price. And the state government very, very cleverly wait to the very end, and they put stamp duty on that. So we've got a tax on a tax on a tax. Mm. Paying and, tax you know, on attack. And then you've got policy. So you've got ALP's, ALP's negative gearing policy, which is, you know, oh, don't worry, you can buy a new property and get your negative gearing. And I wonder why they like to funnel people into new property. I mean, it's, you know, I guess all our income taxes might have to go up if we take out all those property taxes. Well, that's taxes. right. You know, the government either stops spending money or they, you know, if they don't get this tax uh, and then that has social impacts potentially and maybe they have to be a bit smarter with how they spend their money. But end of the day, there's huge parts of our spending we have to keep fun- funding. But it like- is hidden though, and this is the thing. I think what's important here is that governments, successive governments, you know, state and federal, encourage first home buyers and investors to go and buy a new property and then underneath all of that is 40% of whatever they're transacting is taxes, uh, you know, are taxes. You know what I mean? It just keeps keeps the wheels turning, but it's not necessarily transparent and yeah. honest about it. And, I mean, the reason it costs 600000 or 800000 for a house and land package is because a lot of that is government tax, right? So mm. if you were going to improve housing affordability, why don't cut the taxes to developers and, you know, people building <laughs> new apartments and new housing because rather than saying you're going to build 20,000 houses, I guess. Yes, exactly. And, and and that's the reality of it is, is when they're talking about uh, housing affordability and they point the, the stick at all the, uh, at everything else in the market, 
you know, you've got you've got forty plus percent in there to start with housing affordability, and their and their go to position when you hear about it. Oh no, no, if if we started to uh, do anything like that, it would just inflame the market and it wouldn't help anyone. Come on, really? Well, that's the weird thing about affordability, isn't it? Well, okay, if you drop the prices so they're really affordable, well then demand would just go crazy and prices will go up. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I, th- I think it is a very convenient thing for a uh, for an entity, be it anyone, to say, I don't think we can change this system. Um, I'm getting uh, I'm getting forty uh, percent of the uh, of the income that's coming in from the end consumer. So I will justify keeping that system in place um, for for the, all those reasons. So I think it's a completely disingenuous um, mm. discussion from government's point of view. I think, I mean, of the day that the people who really care about housing affordability, um, you know, yes, there's people who care about their kids and things like that, but generally it's the younger generation who aren't in the property market who are aggravated by not being able to get into the market because things are very expensive. Every homeowner or every property owner is quite happy the prices of property are quite high. Maybe they haven't got, they're too high for what they really want, but they're quite happy that their house prices potentially (laughs) has gone up. And, Mm. you know, the problem is that most society are homeowners and they are quite happy with high prices. And then the government's quite happy with high prices because all these taxes, the banks love it because bigger loans and, and bigger profits, you know? And so the government's really on one side, they want to say that they care about housing affordability, but the truth is they don't, you know, because really if they did care about housing affordability, they'd do a lot more around supply and, you know, and, and things rather than just saying, go buy new. Um, and so, I don't know. I think it's all a bit of a smokescreen anyway. It I think is. they really, mm. you know, the, the the property market is $7 trillion because it's been blown up that way because that's what, you know, the government really want. Yeah, it, it really comes down to supply and demand. You know, if you increase the supply of property coming in, it's that simple. If you increase the supply, you will affect uh, the, the affordability. It will come down. And, that, and that's, what we, that's what we desperately need. I feel very, very sorry and I've got three kids that are, are in this position, getting into the, well, trying to get into the property market, um, and, um, and and it is very very hard. You know, I was once told, and I, you find this at first uh, instance entertaining um, this comment, but in time when you analyse, it's not that funny. You know, you live in Sydney when you earn a hundred thousand dollars a year, can't buy a house, and a good car spot will move you to tears. You know, as, as the saying goes, <laughs> mm. and you know that's that's a dreadful comment to think I I'm a big I'm a big earner as a as a uh, you know a sub thirty uh, year old, and and I'm going to struggle to buy a property in Sydney unless I if I work in the city and I I would have to go out and spend a couple of hours uh, a day or more commuting Eating. in, and that's mm. just not a good use of anyone's time. So yeah. a government, a government that allows that to happen, and they are, is not discharging their obligations to the community, and currently they're not doing that. So we've had a lot of episodes and a lot of people we've spoken to around this idea of how can you have oversupply at the same time as demand for more housing, like an undersupply situation, and the oversupply being that developers have been building a lot of stock that isn't actually what the market needs, you know. So you've got, you know, lots and lots and lots of investor stock, which is not, nobody should be buying investor stock. 
<laughs> list of all investors. Um, and that's basically for our listeners. It's kind of your studio apartments. You want mm. better high rises, well, and, and your two, two bedders. You know, and your two bedders. Yeah. You know. So you're not you're not you're not building for a diversified um, population. You're not building for families. You're not building for um, downsizes. You're not building. You're only building this same boxes basically. And so, therefore, you can have too many of them in one congregate in one area. You've, you've, they're all sold to investors, who fundamentally, once they've settled, realise that oh, there's an oversupply. <laughs> We've got too many. We don't even have enough tenants necessarily. So it's a bit, of a, it's a bit weird to think that in a city like Melbourne and, and Brisbane, uh, sorry, Melbourne and Sydney, where we have these issues, you know, and yet we've got this requirement for housing. You know, I mean, clearly it's there, but it's in the wrong spot, so it's the wrong type. I think we need to understand, and this is about coming back to having a regulatory authority that will work with the industry to understand what the community wants. Now, the the contemporary um, purchaser of property uh, as a young as a young person is is looking for something different today than what what I was looking for when I was purchasing a property. So I when I would when I and I shouldn't say that's not a blanket statement, but I'll, there's a big difference um, expressed as a percentage of the people. Uh, I think we have to start and look at um, providing people with high quality, and I always like to underline that high quality but higher density living. Now mm. you can you can you can build some very very high quality. Um, higher density living and have shared facilities where you go down and have your barbecue in yeah. the park and kick the football and all the rest of it. Um, but but we should be looking to build those sort of places over the top of railway stations and these sorts of things so that you can say to people, I will do away with the need for you to have a car. Now, that frees up our cities. So, so you can see here you have to take a holistic view of what people want, what is best for the community. Now, um, I know that uh, if somebody gave me, and in fact, I think I've already I've already done this in my world. Uh, if you gave me a property that meant that I only had a few um, fifteen or twenty minutes to get to work, as opposed to arguably a, a bigger and better property, but it was going to take me an hour and a half each way each day, then then I would much prefer to have the the other the other property. Um, because because as, as a lifestyle, well, it's valuable. a lot better. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's fundamentally it, right? What we be, we've been building is kind of greenfields, turning farms to houses, mm. and building houses on three four hundred square meter blocks with no backyard, and you know, and because they're cheap, people buy them because they want to get in the market, and they've been, you know, they want something new, like just like people want new cars, they want new houses, um, even though they probably know they shouldn't do it. Um, and all the other thing they're buying, they're building is kind of new apartments. And that kind of missing middle is probably the discussion that, you know, I think that needs to happen. The problem is when you're growing a population as fast as we are, um, it's so, in, you know, there's too much money there for the government to turn away, you know, and we talk about, oh, you know, Gladys says she wants to cut the, the migration. Well, she's benefiting of all the stamp duty. She's benefiting from all the land tax. That's why she can go and spend all this big money. Uh, and that, a lot of that comes from population growth. So... So the irony of this stamp duty discussion is that if you drop the rate, you will make more money. Government will make more money if you drop the rate. Um, who's modelled that and how's that yeah, work? Well, um, it's, it is evident in at least four jurisdictions that I can point to. So uh, let's go around clockwise. It was uh, They did it in the Northern Territory and they dropped the rate, made more money. They did it in Western Australia, dropped the rate, made more money following year. They did it in the ACT 
dropped the rate and made more money. So but this the, is all but, because it stimulates. Yeah, there's the more right. there's more transactions. Mm. So you 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 all of a sudden remove the barriers. I said yeah. to you earlier, as I said to you earlier, tax should be a consequence mm. of a transaction. But what was mm. happening, it became a consideration. Mm. So once you dropped the rate, you you started to get more churn. And more churn meant more money to the government, albeit at a lower tax rate. But here's the here's the big one that we can point to that says by dropping the rate, you make more money. Now, um, government had this really good idea about 10, or 10 years or so ago to bring in the vendor duty. Who remembers the vendor oh duty? Oh, my God, vendor tax. Yeah. So, so vendor. <laughs> it lasted, what, six months? Oh, it was a bit longer than oh, that. Right. It was a little bit over 12 months. Right, not so, long. So you would think to yourself, if you put an additional tax in, you are going to make more money, all right? Okay, they they lost in the year, they lost compared to the previous year with their additional tax about $800 million, all right, by doing that. And in the following year, they made $900 million more than that when they got rid of the vendor duty. So you, you remove the tax, you increase the churn, and you make more money. And and so and also so, you increase supply, so that's probably going to help affordability. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and that and that's right. We we mm. need to look at finding ways to bring more property to the market. The other the other uh, bugbear I have is our planning system, uh, and that's a nightmare in itself. Um, our, our planning system is not yes, it's not no, it's maybe, and and in too often. The, the consent authority isn't, isn't the local council. It's the uh, land and environment court. So we just play the game. because the community around. Yeah, so you've got, a, you've got, um, you've got some sort of uh, uh, community, that, that um, a minority in the community doesn't want this particular development, and then, then the local council gets all very concerned about their jobs. And, but um, it's not sometimes a minority. It's the vast majority Oh, so, well, and it, and it can be, and it can be the majority, and that's fine, and that's yeah. fine. If you, I, I'm not an advocate for development above everything else. Uh, that's not the case, you know. And there'd be some developments where I live, which I'd be in support of, and some that I wouldn't. I'd oppose, uh, and that's fine. Yeah, you, it, that's no problem. But if I'm a developer and I come in and I say this is what I want to do, and the answer is maybe, um, that's very expensive, and that goes on the price. That. Um, um, yeah. That happens, and and as a community, be a little bit careful what you wish for, because if your property uh, is worth a million dollars, pick a number, and um, you all get together and say you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to do something else in in this area, all of a sudden you've removed some of the things that your property lends itself to do, and by removing that, um, you devalue it. Yes and no. Like if you look at. Premium suburb, yep. you know, yep. the, the Mossmans, the Double Bays, yep. the Vaucluse, just talking Sydney, but you go Melbourne, the Turaks, the Camberwells, mm. et cetera. What keeps their value is that things aren't going to change. Yeah, no, that's right. And I, so, I, you know, I, the, I agree, and, I agree, I agree. But what yeah. I'm saying is be, be mindful of that. Be a little bit careful of that. Uh, and, and preserving the area can be as valuable, and I, I, I take your point and I concede the point, uh, preserving it can be equally as valuable as as um, allowing development in the area. So, so it it's not always the case. But but what I am saying is that a council should say this development is approved. All right, before before we go, so put a put an envelope there and says if you if you have a development that 
that complies with our requirements, you can do it. If you if you can't, then you can't. So yeah, because what the I'm saying, just exactly. Adds, what adds I'm saying is the cost. What I'm exactly what I'm saying is, if it be yes, let it be yes. If it be no, let it be no. So we can go. So developers can go somewhere and and do a development within an area without having to cut through all of the um, requirements that they currently have to do. And uh, and at the end of the day, the person who pays for all of that, the person who pays for all those additional costs is the end consumer. I guess their, their argument would be that every development is different and that there's, you know, there's unique aspects to every development that, you know, in the local community and the local area that need to be considered and need to be heard before approving something, you know, because otherwise you're going to have the problems like you are having in ride right now. And you're just going to have developments going up for fun. And all of a sudden you've got problems with transport and infrastructure that can't handle, you know, you keep building Yeah, apartments. but that's part of the, the LEP part, and the DCP yeah. in the first place. So therefore, if they, these are your development control plans and local environment plan, then, you know, then the developer has to put forward their application with respect to those restrictions and mm. limitations, and as long as they do, and that's the framework they can work within, you know what I mean. So it's not like a free for all; it's just making it it's clear not, as no. to what yeah. the parameters are. And that's and and that's exactly right. Mm. So so the the council, I think, in the area needs to make a strategic decision about what they want to see their area not next not next year, but mm. in but in twenty years or thirty years yeah, time. Yeah, but then the state government gets involved with that well, too, you know, and so there's there's some issues there yeah. in terms of they override the the council's vision for an area and, and, and vice versa. You know, all the NIMBYs that don't want any development, you know, yeah. so it can go both ways. Yeah, but, that, and that's and it, and again, that's that's part of the problem. We need to take a holistic view. So this circles back to what I said mm. earlier. We need we need experienced people within government, yep. people who have come from industry rather than career bureaucrats. We need people in there planning people yep. and, and each of the government departments work together as one rather than these silos and and take a view about where this uh, city is going, where these suburbs are going um, and then work towards that and, and incentivise certain developments within their area. Like I said, I'm, a, I'm not a uh, planning authority, but it makes, um, it makes sense to me to be encouraging people to build in the airspace over the top of um, uh, transport routes, you know. It, it, oh, it, I, they, I thought they were doing that with the metro well, stations. Well, yeah, yeah, they are. They, yeah, they are. But I don't, I don't think that has been fully exploited. I, I think you can do, you can do better than what they're doing. But I think it is a, is a good step because if you, if you can if you can provide a good public transport system. Um, and you can put people close to those uh, public transport areas, then we can share a, uh, we can share vehicles on the occasion that I need one. Go and go and get mm. a was it a go get or whatever it is. Um, yeah, you- that's what you're saying. I mean, there's I read an interesting stat, and I've, I've said this stat a few times, and I actually need to go back and recheck the stat because. But basically, it was like 80 percent of population rise in Sydney over 20 years or whatever it was, but there's been a 20 percent rise in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. You know, mm. so Sydney as a whole has risen eighty percent, but it's only twenty percent rise in population in the east. And you know, I think this is—it's always going to come back to this problem where, you know, people are going to either protect status quo because that's what increases their price yeah, of their property. Yeah, but it's or, also about where the available land is to develop. You know, so there's not a lot you know available in the east, and that's probably one of the reasons why there hasn't been that. Whereas you've got you've got you know you've you've, you've geographically constrained, but also it's an older area, and so therefore nearly all the bits of land have been built on. 
Yeah, yeah, and, th- and that's part of the reason. But I mean, also part of the reason is that you know very little gets built in the east because of you know no one wants to change status quo. Um, I don't think it's that. I, I, I seriously think that it is because it is already developed. Well, why is there no more town there's, high rises? But there's in- not a huge amount of oh, look at Bonner Junction. But there's not a huge amount of say rezoned land. In the eastern suburbs, there's not a lot of factories in the eastern suburbs. There's not a lot of warehouses, you know. You look down at Mascot, for instance, and all the warehouses and everything surrounding the airport. Well, that's right for redevelopment because the values change and obviously rezoning, et cetera, et cetera. But they actually, eastern suburbs, where is that availability of land to be able to redevelop? That's I think that's the point. It's not because they don't want to change. It's just that it's already built. I um I also find it uh, interesting that the city is now becoming a place to live, like the CBD. Um, you know, twenty years ago, you you worked in the CBD and you lived in the burbs, didn't you? Mm. And now we're seeing um, a lot of the uh, uh, you know the B and C class uh, commercial properties being converted yeah. into resi. Um, and and now we're also seeing on Saturdays and Sundays where it used to be a ghost town uh, that the city is coming to life, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's a that's that's a demonstration of what the contemporary uh, property consumer wants. They're saying, "I'm happy to live, and I'd rather live in the city." And um, and in doing that, I'm you know I'm, I'm close to my work. The so city's a good place. That's also a vision of the council. The council yeah. came out with "Living City" being yeah. their, their mantra. And how many? Oh, it's decades ago now that they came out with that as a mantra, and everyone mm. was like, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. Who wants to live in the city?" And and you can see that it takes that sense of vision and that long term focus for any of that to change because it's right. not been an overnight thing. No. In summary, I guess you know we. We're, we're, when you've got a petition going to the state government to, to change, so we get a dedicated commissioner, right? Yep. When is there an end date to when that petition? It, it will be, I suppose, at the uh, next uh, state election. Um, right. That would be the end of uh, of that phase of it. But uh, we um, we're not giving up. We'll just keep going until we. Uh, so until we'll, we... we'll put the link in the show notes then. So oh, if anybody wants to yeah, sign, sign the I, petition, I, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But, but everybody, a... everybody has. Uh, it's not just it's not just the property services industry that has a stake in this. It's everybody. Hmm. Everybody that that has an interest in property. And again, um, this is a, a cradle to the grave um, asset, isn't it? We, uh, every single one of us has a stake, has a stake in the property industry. Yeah. So uh, I think everybody should be signing it. Every week we hear an example of a property dumbo. Mistakes that can be avoided. Tim, have you got a property dumbo for us? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, well, I, look, you couldn't go past negative gearing, could you? This is, this is purely politics. Um, it, it, it again comes back to let's find somebody to blame. Because if I, can, if I can divert your attention away from your inability as a government to, to, to provide me with affordable housing, if I can do that and I can divert your attention to blame somebody else, then you don't see my failing. And that's, and that's really what it is all about. And they, they say negative gearing. Uh, negative, negative gearing applies to any investment. So if I was to buy um, shares, if I was to go, um, go and borrow money and uh, purchase a heap of shares and I was negatively geared, there's no suggestion that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't have, uh, have the benefit of that. But, but I'm not allowed to have it when it comes to, uh, to property. And, uh, and the reason being is everybody has a stake in property. So it's the Dumbo of the Week, in well, my view. 
Are you for the policy or against it? Um, no, <laughs> no. Well, it's a Dumbo one, so I'm violently against it. It's it is ridiculous. And just to, to clarify, violently against removing negative yeah, gearing yeah, for property investors. Yeah, violently against removing it. It is, it, as I said, I do make myself clear, but as I said, it's um, it is it, the pure, the pure uh, politics in this is to divert the attention away from government's inability to provide affordable housing. Find somebody else to blame. And that's, and that's what they're trying to do. So the worry is with this negative gearing is that it's going to happen and it's going to go through, you know, because they're highly likely $1.10 or $1.12 to win the election. Um, and, you know, they're probably going to have a landslide victory potentially. They might struggle getting it through the Senate. But let's say it does happen. What do you think, what do you think would be the impact of that policy on the market more generally and what parts in particular would be affected? So if it goes through, um, and, and it will depend on what it looks like when it goes through, because I noticed, I noticed some of the upper house already, uh, um, some of the independents, the crossbenchers are saying that we will, we will block it, um, but we would permit this or that. So they're saying uh, if you've only got one property, then it would be okay. Um, and um, but if you've got multiple properties, then then there'd be an issue. So it's a little difficult to answer your question because I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But yeah. but I can say this: if you are diverting a, a um, uh, money away from uh, the property market, if you if you are diverting money away from uh, developing housing with an increasing population, so our demand increases and our supply decreases, uh, back to economics what's 101, what's going to happen to mm. prices? So yep. I, it's a it's a dangerous political game they're playing. And uh, and frankly, I, I, uh, I, it worries me when they start to go down this path. Again, property, is, property and housing and all these sorts of things are in a completely different asset class and has to have a completely different focus and consideration to, uh, to other investment opportunities. Yeah. So you said that what happens up to prices, but you're suggesting that prices would go up of housing, of units, of rents. What 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 exactly would you say would go <laughs> well, up? Well, well, again, um, I'm no economist, but but I'm saying that if if the uh, number of new properties that are being built um, declines or or doesn't increase, and we have an increasing population. Now, last time I looked at the ABS figures. Uh, New South Wales was growing at about 1%, which was sort of knocking on the door of 100,000 people yep. a year, okay? They, they've got to live somewhere. And again, I'm no economist, but there's 100,000 people walking into the state saying, uh, where do I live? <laughs> and if your, if your investment in, um, in new housing doesn't, um, doesn't increase, um, then then the price of this must go up. It has to. It won't come down, that's for certain. Yeah, and that's the challenge, that's the problems here. It's these unintended consequences that, mm. you know, sound great at first. We're going to create high, better housing affordability. But I've, I'm with you. I think the rents would probably go up long term. And then secondly, that the houses that people really want to live in would probably go up. And in the short term, we'd see a massive fall in, in investors driven stuff because, you know, apartments and things like that, because new investors go, I don't want to live there um, and I don't want to buy it because I can't get negative gearing. So, and we haven't got enough first home buyers 
or young families that want to go live in one, two bedroom apartments that um, they all want the housing. They all want the three bed houses. So um, yeah, it's, it's well, going to be. It's also, it just results in the stock that people do want will definitely go up and the stuff that people don't want will go down and yeah. it can all coexist in the same market and yeah. the market will do what the market does. And same as the first home buyer stuff that uh, government came out, I found that really entertaining. So we had a median house price of about, 950 or knocking on the door of a mill and they said it's only we only oh, uh we'll, stupid it, well <laughs> this is the entertaining side of it they said that we will uh we'll give you incentives to go and buy new property which sounds great um so that by doing that we're going to uh, increase increase the uh, demand in that area okay so increasing demand doesn't solve a supply problem that's the first thing that we should recognize driving yeah. driving first home buyers in the vast majority of first home buyers buy an existing property. So yeah. I'm talking about not currently, but a little while back. And it all peters out at, I think, about 800, 800. 800 or $850,000. So you've got a median house price of nearly a million, and um, and yeah. uh, it's all gone. And all the first home buyer stuff has gone at 800 850 so and what, what that what, has what, done? What a, what a ridiculous system! It was a stupid policy, mm. and I, I still think it's you know it's crazy. And it, it's after six fifty, it starts to drop away quite quickly. Yeah. So seven fifty, seven hundred, it's nowhere near as big as it was. You know, completely no stamp duty. And you know, what you think? Well, where can I buy in Sydney under six fifty? And well, you know, it's a studio apartment, or it's maybe a one better far out. Um, so we're and it's a state based policy. So people in Newcastle, yeah, know, you know, ridiculous. Central Coast, yeah. Wollongong, where they're not really. St- feeling the stresses of housing affordability anyway, loving it. <laughs> uh, and then the Sydney families that's struggling to get in the market yep. who could do with the kick aren't getting the kick. Um, you know, it's it was a completely stupid policy. I agree. Uh, I need to be much higher. It's just the whole thing's just infuriating, I have to say. Too much yelling at televisions at the moment. But, um, Tim, it's been a very, very interesting and spirited conversation we've we might have to cut this into two episodes i think we've gone we've gone we've we've covered a lot of ground and and we've you know really talked about stamp duty and affordability and solved the world's problems but also this idea of you've corrected me not self regulation but a, a proactive collaborative yeah. co-regulation who should be um, on the political side dictating policy and determining policy and what they need to understand yeah. before they do so and and why this matters to property owners and property buyers and it's it's a very very important uh, topic and we really appreciate you coming along and talking about it absolute pleasure thank, thank you, you. cheers we want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is Really quick one today and on short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. All the things that we've been talking about today with Tim McGibbon really point to this idea that you need to think long-term when it comes to property, okay? There's so much media out there at the moment talking about property prices falling and plummeting and negative gearing and capital gains tax and this and that. At the end of the day, if you are relying and you're thinking short-term, and you're going to be relying on this information, you'll be knee-jerking all over the place and reactive in the way that you look at your property journey and whether you buy a home or investment or all that sort of stuff, you are going to be tossed around and you are going to be stressed. But if you have a long-term view, you are committed for the long-term. You buy a good quality asset. It doesn't really matter when you buy it. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't even really matter if you don't get negative gearing because if you do it well enough, you're going to buy something that goes up in value and does its job for you over the long term, then you're not going to be as 
worried about everything that's going on in the marketplace. You're not going to be as worried about government policy, really, because you've actually had your firm focus on the long term, not on short term changes. Tune in to our next episode when we interview inner city Brisbane agent and auctioneer Hazley Cush. We cover a whole lot of ground. We talk about unit prices and oversupply. We also talk about what you need to look for if you want to buy a unit in Brisbane, but also tips for inner city investors. And lastly, how buyers can research the market when agents can't give price guides. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.